All right, we want to continue in our study of Revelation chapter 2. <clears throat> As I said, we want to go work our way through all the seven churches. Not all of them will take this much time. The first one typically takes the most because we have background, and there's going to be a lot of repetition in the other churches, which we won't spend a lot of time on. So I'm taking some time in this one to set the stage for the others as well. But um, we looked at uh, the verse 1 um, the last time we were uh, together and talked about who Jesus, Christ, the one who's writing this, uh, Jesus Christ himself. And then we started looking at verse 2, and we saw that we need to truly live in the reality that Jesus knows our deeds. I think too often what happens is we live as if he really doesn't know. We, th we believe he knows, at least we claim to believe, but we act like it's no big deal. But you look at the opening words in verse 2, I know your deeds, those words should jump out at us, grab hold of our hearts, and cause us to be at attention and realize that this is serious. He knows our deeds. There's nothing that you do that he does not know about. And he addresses every church this way. Every church, all seven churches in Revelation, he says, I know your deeds. So this should awaken us and make us more attentive to how we live. As I said last week, what gives sin such a stronghold in life is the illusion of secrecy. We think we can do things or we think we can think things. There's things in our heart that nobody else knows. And so we have this illusion that nobody knows these things when in reality, God does know. Jesus knows our deeds. He knows everything about us. And so the words, I know your deeds, emphatically destroys that illusion of secrecy. There is no secret with God, right? <clears throat> And then we also looked at verse 2 uh, and saw that we are to work hard at living right, living the way God wants us to live. That Jesus Christ knows all that goes on should be an encouragement to us and should be an incentive to persevere in faithfulness and to toil, to work hard. The Christian life is not an easy life. It's just not. It's, it, it, this world is not conducive to faithful living. And so we have to strive hard. We have to work hard at it. All the works we do, everything we do, if done in God's grace for His glory, will never escape His attention. He sees it. And too often, we don't work hard unless people see us. Then we want to be in the limelight. And what we find here is that we are to work hard. We are to toil. And so Jesus commends the Ephesian church for their works. And if you look at verse 2, He uses three words. He, he emphasized this by using the word deeds, toil, and perseverance. And the way, it's a, the way it's set up is that that word deeds, it refers to more than just good works. It refers to the entire spiritual life. And so their spiritual walk, if you will, their faithfulness in their walk, if you will, is good. It's what God desires. And then that term deeds, what they do, what they live, is described by the word toil and perseverance. Toil gives the active side. It means to labor. It means to work hard. In fact, technically, it means that you work to the point of exhaustion. You give it everything you have. You spend yourself in rigorous labor, so to speak. And so this church was very active. It was very conscientious. In the overall manner of their life, they worked hard. Okay, The spiritual life is not something that just happens. You don't just wake up and simply go through the motions. You have to work at it. Now, the term perseverance gives the passive side. So toil is the active side. 
Perseverance is the passive side. They patiently endured the hostility of that community, of, of the wicked. Okay, because they lived in, in an environment that was not conducive to Christian living. Paganism and immorality ran rampant in, in uh, Ephesus. If you recall the first lesson we went through, we talked about the background of Ephesus and how evil it was. And despite the temptations that came from every angle, they stood unswerving. They did not cave in. See, our culture is very much the same as Ephesus. And they didn't hide from that spiritual war that was raging. They held to the gospel. They would not cave in. We need to understand that living a true Christian life, to live for God in an evil environment, takes a lot of hard work. There has to be perseverance. There has to be endurance. And we have to persevere over all opposition. And if you look at our culture today, it's getting worse. The opposition towards Christianity is just bombarding more and more. And so the problem with a lot of Christians, or so-called Christians today, is that they're looking for the easy way. So as a result, there's a lot of easy believing stuff, just, just peripheral surface stuff, and they claim to be Christians. I, I read an article about a month ago where someone claimed that 82% of people in this country are Christians. And so it's very easy believism type stuff. It's very uh, just laid back, relaxed. True Christian living is hard work. It is toil, if you will. See, it's easy to get lazy in the Christian life. Just go through the motions. Give in. Leave me alone type of thing. But what we see with these Christians in Ephesus is they toiled, they labored. The Christian life is hard. We need to understand that. I, I really get frustrated when people share the gospel and tell them that, oh, life gets better. Yes and no. Life can get better in the sense of your relationship with God, but it doesn't get better on earth. It gets more difficult. Jesus Christ never said and never promised that when we become believers, when we follow after him, life is going to be easy and life is going to be um, no, no problems. You have to work hard at it. And so this means that we do what we do in serving others, we need to do it heartily with all of our hearts and we need to toil at it. And remember, when, whatever you do, whenever you serve, you're doing it for an audience of one. That means that if nobody else sees you, that's irrelevant. The only one that matters is the Lord himself. And he sees everything you do. And so we labor hard, even if we do not get recognized. Always remember, I do this for an audience of one. As I read last week, I want to quote this pastor again. He said, To every faithful servant of Christ who has labored in virtual obscurity in the nursery, I say, Jesus knows your works. To every Sunday school teacher who spends hours um, preparing and teaching, although only a handful show up early enough for class, I say, Jesus knows your works. To every diligent believer who stuffs the bulletin with inserts or cleans up in the kitchen after potluck dinner or picks up trash following the Sunday service, I say, Jesus knows your works. And we can have a whole list of things that when we labor, when we work for his kingdom and nobody else sees it, it doesn't matter. He sees it. He knows it. That's all that matters. So Jesus is ever mindful of all of those works that are rarely seen and maybe not even acknowledged by others. Jesus Christ knows. I remember in several church, uh, other churches that I uh, worked in, 
I used to hear it all the time of people saying, I did that, but nobody ever thanked me. Why should I do it anymore? I had one person that literally pulled back from everything and said, I was never acknowledged. Why should I do it? And I said, uh, and I basically just gently confronted him and said, yes, why do you do it? Why do you do it? Okay, because if you're doing it to be acknowledged, then you should step down. You're doing it for the wrong reason. See, we labor hard, but we labor hard for an audience of one, not for an audience of as many people as there are. Right. And so the visit to the nursing home to go spend time with a, a person, Jesus knows that, even if nobody else does. Right. When you prepare a meal for somebody that is uh, hurting or having a, a tough time, Jesus Christ knows that. When you just go spend time with, with a neighbor to be a friend, Christ knows that. It may be you know, something that's, uh, that doesn't fit into our schedule, but we force it anyway. Christ knows that. Even if your name is not mentioned from the pulpit, Christ knows that. And that's all that matters. And so the Christian life is a life that we toil, we work hard at, regardless who sees it, regardless who acknowledges it, because the only one that matters is Jesus Christ himself. So never forget that Jesus Christ always knows. It'll give you that encouragement to keep going, keep serving, regardless of what man may say. But again, as I mentioned earlier, this is, it's also important that we ask ourselves why we do what we do. If it is for perks, if it is to be recognized, if it is to be praised, to be noticed, the Lord knows that, and He remembers that. And basically, that's all you get from it. <laughs> Right? People do their works for uh, man's acknowledgement. That's all you get. Christ knows that. The Lord knows your works. He also knows the motivation that's in your heart. So search your heart. Work hard at living right. And part of the hard working is that you have to do it for the right motivation. And face it, because of our flesh, that's hard, isn't it? We want to get acknowledged. We want to be praised. We want that pat on the back. And if you don't get it, you have to work through that. Yes, sir. Yes, that's what it means to work hard. Exactly. Make a conscious yes, it's a conscious effort, a conscious it's work. Not that, always easy. No, and that's why it's a toil. Yes, exactly. It's not always easy. It is toil. It is labor, because as I said, that flesh inside of us, we want that. And many times it is hard. The simplest thing could be very difficult because of the motivation. right? And so it is difficult. It's very, very hard. Now, after dealing with their toil and perseverance, notice he moves on and he talks about their orthodoxy. There in the, the, the last part of verse 2. And he says that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you found them to be false. We cannot tolerate false teaching. See, unlike many today, and I, I, I come across this again and again, uh, unlike many today who use the excuse of love and turn a blind eye to wrong teaching, we look at the Ephesians here, and they did not put up with wrong teaching. They hated evil, and he, evil here means that which is useless and that which is bad. So whatever form evil took, whether ethical or theological, they stood strong in their opposition to it. They refused to compromise theologically. See, we need to understand that's what true love is. 
See, love is not just accepting people. That's not true love. True love is intolerant to all that is evil. As one person said, unsanctified mercy has no place in the church. It had no place in the Ephesian church, right? It's a great quality that I believe is missing more and more in churches all across our land. For the sake of love, for the sake of unity, we begin to compromise and accept everything, and that's dangerous. Too many Christians tolerate evil to the point of compromising with it, and it's dangerous. So notice what it tells us here. First, they, they did not tolerate evil men. They resisted those whose lives were outwardly sinful. They didn't accept it. I remember one time I was at a, a, a young man just out of seminary at a church. And there was a, a couple that visited and they started visiting. I come to find out that they were just living together, not, um, uh, not married. And so when I found out, I took the man out for lunch and I said, you know, we need to talk about this and so forth. So he, he agreed with me that it was wrong, said he was going to move out. Well, what happens? They never came back because when he told the woman he was with, she didn't want anything to do with it. I got confronted by different people saying, why did you do that? And I said, because we have to confront that which is evil. And they said, you didn't have to do that. Just let them sit in the back where nobody could see them and let them keep coming. And they said, isn't that the more loving thing to do? And I said, no, that is a very hateful thing to do. It is hateful because you're allowing them to live in sin. How's that loving? But I remember I got confronted, so-called confronted by different people, and I even lost a couple of people from the church as a result, because he, one lady said, you need to mind your own business. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's, that's what's going on in the churches. Yes, I know. It's, it's hard. And and that what I loved about what I love about verse two is that they did not tolerate it, and that's what we need. We need people who do not tolerate such wickedness. Um, They were not able to tolerate these evil people. And the verb for tolerate literally in the Greek means to carry or to bear. They, excuse me, these Ephesians, they were not able to bear these evil men. And so this is the passive side of what they did. They did not put up with it. They did not bear with it. They did not carry it. They did not allow it to keep coming. And then secondly, they tested those who called themselves apostles. And this term tested is used for putting someone to the test to see it, or to put something to the test to see if it is valid, to see if it is what it is. It is a basic term that's used both in the Old and in the New Testament for a critical examination of a person's claim. Okay, So they didn't just accept what these people said. They were going to test these so-called apostles. And uh, they were the evil ones that they did not tolerate. Apparently these heretics acted like wandering missionaries who'd go from one house church to the next house church to the next house church to show forth how wonderful they are and how smart they are and how great they are by teaching things that were not true. And no doubt they're claiming to be um, the outer circle of apostles because there were you have the 12 apostles, but then you had the outer circle, people like uh, James the Just and Silas and Andronicus and others. And so these false apostles here were claiming to be one of those, that they were in with those people, and they were affirmed by the true apostles, so to speak. But what I want you to see is that this was not a knee-jerk reaction, where the moment they got in, they quickly removed them. They tested these people. They listened to what they said. They searched the scriptures to see if it was true. When it was not true, they brought it forth. Right? 
And so they tested these apostles and they exposed them as false teachers. And that's what we need to do. We need to expose those uh, false teachers. And believe me, they're everywhere. They are everywhere. We see them constantly. And so the necessity of testing doctrine was widely recognized in that early church because there were false teachers popping up everywhere. It's not just today. It's been in the church from the beginning. Okay, Paul confronted it. There are false teachers throughout history. And you read early church history, ancient church history, and you'll see that there are false teachers constantly popping their heads out with writings and teachings. And the church, uh, church has to be diligent over that. And so this church had discerned doctrinal inconsistency that, that was associated with these people, and they basically refused to accept them and would not allow them in. It's interesting because Paul himself had warned the Ephesian elders about this scenario. And in Acts, you, you read about uh, when he returned to Palestine, he, uh, after his third missionary journey, um, he put in at Miletus, which is about 35 miles away from Eph um, uh, Ephesus. And then he had called for the elders to come, and he spoke to them of the fact that there are going to be heretical teachers that were going to come up, and he says, do not tolerate them. You can read about it in Acts chapter 20, verse 28-31. He warned them, and we see here by the end of the first century, they're still doing that. They took heed to what Paul warned the last time he was with them. And so for the Ephesian church, and it be, should be for us, that heresy detected is heresy denied. When we detect heresy, we deny it. We refuse it. We don't accept it. And so they refuse to bear with such people, and so should we. We cannot allow what some people call acceptance and unity and love to get in the way. That is very dangerous. And, and, and uh, when you look at what they were teaching, it was probably not that much different from that of the Nicolaitans. You read in verse 6. Verse 6, it says, Yet uh, this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Interesting here. There are things that Jesus actually does hate. See that? You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, what I also hate. Note that word. That's a strong word. There are things that Jesus Christ hates. And if he hates it, what about us? So this whole argument that, well, we need to love them and accept them is not an acceptable argument. Right? Jesus hates their deeds. We should hate the deeds of false teachers as well. All right? Now, as far as the Nicolaitans are concerned, this was a sect that was characterized by compromise, impurity. They taught that there should be some degree of participation in the culture. It's okay to get involved with what they do. Not much different than people in our churches today. They say, that's okay. That's okay to get involved in those things. And so the temptations... And even the pressures to become so involved were great because the city was dominated by evil. They were dominated by um, those pagan temples. And the Nicolaitan heresy also included the exaltation of the clergy over the laity. See, the word Nicolaitan, if you were to look at its etymology, basically it means laity conqueror. 
laity conquer. In other words, it's not much different than what we have with Roman Catholicism and the priests. Okay, When the priest walks by, oh, and you want to kiss their hand and do whatever, because they feel that the priests are bigger, better, over the laity. They conquer the laity. That's the, what the Nicolaitans taught. I'm the great one. You're honored to have me. And when they walk by, you want to kiss their hand or just touch them. Okay, then that's what the Nicolaitans taught. So there's compromise as well as a lot of um, a lot of arrogance, if you will. And uh, they basically uh, the the foundation of what they believed was what we call antinomianism. In other words, we have freedom. We have freedom. And so they compromise. And you can see that it's associated with uh, the doctrine of Balaam in chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. When we get there, we'll see that even more. So they were licentious, advocated compromise with pagan society, the idolatrous cultures of Ephesus. But we need to understand that this is not true just in Ephesus. There are people like that all around. I, I hear it. What about unity? What about love and acceptance? Didn't Jesus accept us? where we are, and I have to look at him and say, yes and no. He accepted me where I was, but he didn't want me to stay where I was. And so they cry out, unity and love, cultural relevance. So what's the problem with all of that? Cultural relevance and acceptance. What is wrong with all of that? Why is that so dangerous? Or is it dangerous? You might think it's not. Any thoughts? Depends on what the culture is. Depends on what the culture is, okay. It's dangerous because the culture, by and large, if it's not from God and of God, it's wrong, it's sinful. Mm -hmm. And people can say things that feel as though that those are Christian attributes, like unity and love and kindness, but in the wrong context. Oh yeah, it's very, very much. It makes sense, and that's exactly what they're arguing. The problem is, is I always tell people, where do we see that in Scripture? You know, where do we see that in Scripture, especially with our culture today, with all the stuff that's happening? How can we accept it and still maintain purity before God? And again, I go back to what Jesus Christ said. He didn't put up with the actions of Nicolaitans. I hate their actions. And if Jesus Christ can hate the actions of the Nicolaitans then, and, and what they practice, then we have not only the right to, but I believe we have the precedence to do it. Jesus Christ hates it. We should hate too. Hate those sinful actions. And so we have to be careful of how Christians or so-called Christians approach this uh, this situation, because again, I, I, as a chaplain with with hospice, and we have other chaplains, and not, I mean, I don't want to criticize, but a lot of them accept all kinds of things, and that's what they accept out of love and unity and peace, and it's very difficult. Uh, if I, I, out of the eight chaplains, I'm, as far as I know, I'm the only reformed chaplain there is, and so a lot of it is a lot of just general acceptance, you know, and. I struggle with that, and they know I struggle with it. And we've had our discussions and debates. Um, I will not accept their views, um, but it's it's hard, and and it's it's in churches all around. And so we need to take seriously what's happening. And so these Christians at Ephesus, these people in Ephesus, the church at Ephesus, did not fall for their teaching because they knew that this 
counterfeit living, if you will, is a dis uh, it's a distortion. It's a distortion of biblical purity. They believe that biblical love cannot tolerate and compromise in any way, in any way, because it's an affront to Christ. And note the words perseverance and endurance. They form this comprehensive concept. They endure, per uh, they endure persecution, but not perversion. We cannot endure sin. Any sin, right? And so they have stood firm for orthodoxy, but they triumphed over the heretics by exposing them. And we would do well today to follow their example. Just think about what would happen to the church in this country if we followed that example, right? And so this uh, warning is crucial for us today. In fact, Paul, in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he gave the warning. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 and 4, he said, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. And when somebody is, uh, is able to compromise and accept the world view, I believe that's a myth. It's not biblical purity. And so Paul even warns in 2 Timothy, and now we see it in, in Ephesus, there's always going to be those false teachers. There's always going to be people who are going to try to bring compromise into the church. And we have to be aware and stand strong against it. And uh, we, we see this in the early church as well, uh, throughout church history. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, Paul talks about the false teachers that they had to detect. And in fact, they, they came under the guise of apostles of Christ, servants of righteousness. They want to put themselves on display as, yes, we are the teachers. We are the ones you need to follow, yet they compromise. We have to be aware it's very dangerous, um, but the uh, Ephesians, and, and, and in this part, I think we should take their uh, example. They exposed them. They saw that theologically they were incorrect. And so the emphasis is on persevering and guarding the doctrinal purity of the church. And that's critical. I believe the reason why the church in America is so weak is because we have not guarded the doctrinal purity. We have compromised and we have allowed so much to, to let in. <clears throat> I remember one time sitting in a class, we were talking about uh, establishing a doctrinal statement for the church. And here's what's amazing in that discussion, what they concluded. You want to go to the very least basic doctrinal statement. Don't have too much in it so that we can have more people to accept in. Think about that. Just a few points. So we had to write a doctrinal statement. Um, mine was like about five pages long, and of course I did not get a good grade on it, but I said, why would you want to do something small so you can accept people? I'd rather have a full-blown doctrinal statement, okay, so that people know where this is what we hold to. And we will expose those that don't agree. I have a friend that uh, goes to a Methodist church here, <clears throat> and I suppose almost every week he's telling me something that's going on like that, that they are compromising something. And half of the church does not like it. The other half, eh, that's okay, we should. You know, it's modern. And blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. but they're fighting that all the time. It's sad. It shouldn't be that way in the church. But again, uh, we, we have lost the vision of what Christ has for the church. It's not about numbers. 
And every time I talk to pastors, the first question is numbers. When I pastored a church and I'd go to these pastors, I, I stopped going to pastoral meetings. I just got tired of it. Because the first question, how many did you have on Sunday morning? Who cares? Right? Who's in charge of the numbers? God is. I'm not. So who cares? But that's all they want to know. And then they talk about what they preach. And some of the stuff that I heard people preach, I thought, gracious God, have mercy on their souls. Yeah, progressive Christianity. Progressive Christianity is a hoax. It is false. It is wrong because progressive Christianity is that it changes with the time, right? We have to fit in. Yeah, exactly. But see, here's the problem. You say, look at our country, and you're right. Problem is, is that those type of Christians look at our country and say, isn't this great? We're accepting of all things. That's the problem. And that's why I said we in this country, our culture is not that much different than what we see in the, in the city of Ephesus. But notice, they endured. They persevered. They resisted. And if they did, we can too. And here's the interesting thing. They did not have religious freedom and religious liberty. We do. Well, still do. Somewhat. Yeah. And so if they could endure, then we can endure as well. We can endure just as well. And so they were ever vigilant towards doctrinal purity. And we need this in our lives. I do believe with everything that is in me that Jesus Christ hates moral and theological compromise. Even though people today say, well, God loves us all. Not the way you think. Right? Uh, we need to understand. Maybe we should do a lesson on what, what it means when it says that God loves. Because I don't think we understand. A lot of people don't understand what God's love means. And please understand this. I saw this in a bumper sticker and I just wanted to scream. Okay. It says, God, God is made of love, period. Okay. In other words, the number one thing of God is his love. That's not true. God does not have a number one thing. Okay. God has countless attributes and all of them together make up who God is and they're all important. So God's judgment and God's hatred is just as great as God's love. Right? We need to understand that. I know you do, but a lot of people don't. Anytime we talk about God, the first thing they talk about is, oh, God loves us. God loves us. And He does. I don't want to deny that. But God hates sin. He hates sin. He hates compromise. Any appeal to grace to justify sin is repugnant to the nostrils of God. Any um, attempt to rationalize immorality because, oh, we have liberty in Christ. That's an affront to the cross. We need to have the same attitude that they had here towards purity, where they resist all that is evil, all that is false. They maintain doctrinal purity. And this, for the Ephesian church, they went well into the second century, even though there were constant threats that came against them. Please understand this when people use love. Think of it this way. Genuine Christian love, true Christian love, is never expressed by the tolerance of wickedness. Okay? When you tolerate that which is evil, you are showing that you do not love them. 
It's not loving to accept another person's beliefs if those beliefs are wrong. You know, we should all just accept one another. We should all be at peace with one another. No, no. We need to declare war against all that is evil and wrong. We don't have the right, biblically speaking, to uh, accept false teaching. This so-called cultural relevancy will cause compromise in many ways. Think about our country today in this push for gender change and gender acceptance and homosexual marriages and all. Whether you realize it or not, as blatant as that is, and Scripture says it is an affront to God, many churches are beginning to accept it. Many churches are accepting all of these things. You go to California, the majority of churches have accepted it. Okay? All for the sake of love, for the sake of peace, for the sake of unity. And we need to understand that what's going on in the church today or what's going on in our culture today is not different than in the early church. We just have more ways of doing it. Um, but there was homosexuality back then as well, and people were doing that. In fact, in many areas back then in the first century, especially with the Caesars, they would consider that homosexuality was a higher level than just regular sexuality, heterosexuality. If you were just heterosexual, you're here, but homosexuality is up here. Yes. There was never same-sex marriage. No. Not even in Rome. No. They, they accepted the homosexual, but then again, marriage didn't mean that much to them anyway. But yes, you're right. And so, again, it just keeps, and, and it keeps getting worse. And it keeps going. It doesn't stop. And the church today is beginning to accept it. Okay, we have certain denominations that are now ordaining, not only ordaining women to pastors, but lesbian women. As pastors, okay, and so it's happening, and you know, people are praising those churches, wondering how wonderful it is. But the bottom line is, it is evil. It is repugnant to the to to, to God. See, being in the world never entails compromise with any sin. We are to be in the world, but not of it, not to walk in it. And so the Ephesian church is commended for boring that which is morally bad and that which is theologically in error. And so I, my prayer constantly is that God would continue to protect us and give us discernment to identify false teachers and to label them as false teachers and re remove them if they come in. So we have to be careful, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, who we listen to. You know, we can't tolerate false teaching. Uh, to me, it's uh, it's the breaker in the church. When you begin to tolerate false teaching, the church will fall. But notice in verse 3, it gives us the reason why they did this. Verse 3, And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Right? What's at stake here is the honor of the name of Jesus Christ. 
See, in this world, people may endure hardship uh, or persecution for different reasons, such as political beliefs, right? Others for the sake of social justice. For different reasons, people will suffer persecution or difficulties. But for the follower of Jesus Christ, is uh, endurance is uh, motivated by one single passion, and that is Jesus Christ, nothing else. See, to suffer for the sake of suffering is foolish, right? I don't go around boasting. I suffered and it was great. You know that, does, that that's foolish. You would think that there's something wrong with a person that would say that. But no one in the right minds likes to suffer pain. So there's no intrinsic value in that in and of itself. But Jesus himself, even when he suffered, remember why he suffered? Hebrews tells us, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. There was a goal for the sake of which he endured the, the horrors of Calvary. All right. And so these Ephesian believers no doubt would have experienced incredible persecution. They faced temptation to compromise, to avoid that persecution. And we'll face the same thing. Money, physical comfort, the joy of simply being left alone, these are all temptations to get us to compromise. It's been in the church throughout history. But these believers didn't give in. Note the repetition in verse 3. The, 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 the Jesus says their perseverance. Secondly, they have endured. Third, they have not grown weary. Three times he makes mention of them in different ways about how they endured and did not give in to the persecution. So it is the name of Jesus Christ that motivated them to endure all of this hostility, all of this wickedness in the society. And so they continue to bear up, even under the pressure, because they are concerned for the honor of the name of Jesus Christ. How desperately we need that today. That we take the honor of Jesus Christ's name so seriously that we would not bear with that which is evil. And so they did not grow weary. They didn't give up because of his name. So they endured with a view to making known that Jesus was a treasure far greater than anything this world could offer. And we need to keep that in mind. Because if we're honest, money is a strong motivator for compromise. Money is a strong motivator. We need to be very careful. Very careful in our world. And again, it's not just the Ephesian church. We see this mentioned in Scripture. In Hebrews chapter 10, talks about, uh, in verse 34, how it says that many of these Christians accepted joyfully the seizure of their property because they knew that they have a better possession and a lasting one. We need to have our minds focused that. In Hebrews chapter 11, talks about Moses. When he turned his back on the perks of royalty, it says, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. And then we're given the reason why he did this. In verse 26 of chapter 11, it says, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So notice why he turned his back on those perks. Christ was more treasurable to him than everything Egypt could offer. And Christ has not changed. He is still a far greater treasure than anything this world could ever offer you. 
And that's why Moses turned away from those temptations. We see this in Paul. He had a passion to see Christ and, and to enjoy and delight in Jesus Christ. And this accounted for his uh, decision to turn back, uh, turn his back on those earthly achievements. Remember all that he, he, he did as, a, as an un, uh, unbeliever. In Philippians 3, verses 7 through 9, he made this, this statement, which I love this statement. I pray that this will be true of me. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. I love that passage. He gave it all up and said, is a, is a, a better exchange that I may gain Christ. And if I gain Christ, then I'm further ahead, if I, even if I lose everything. And that's why he did what he did. And we see the Ephesian church is the same thing. They did it for the name of Christ. And so these Ephesian believers... No doubt many of them suffered back then. It was not unusual to have uh, people suffer, even die, be put in prison, different things. But for them it was worth it because they suffered for the sake of his name. How far would we go to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ? Something we need to think about because it's coming. I believe it is coming. Something we need to pray about now that God would give us the strength to persevere. And even if we have to suffer, suffer for his name's sake. Because it is coming. So Jesus Christ is treasured above everything, even over life. And as a result, he is magnified. And that's why he praises them for this. Now, this sort of perseverance, this sort of endurance that Jesus praises, doesn't come very easily. Why not? Why is it so hard? There's a cost. What? I missed it. There's a cost. There's a cost. Okay. Pay something in a sense. Yeah. There's a cost, and we don't like to give up that whatever it is we have to give up, right? It's a struggle. It's the flesh against the spirit. Yeah. And there's that constant battle inside, isn't there? Yeah. Exactly. You know, our flesh screams, quit. Yield to the pressure. Just think of the relief. Nobody would be pointing a finger at you anymore, right? Nobody would be saying anything. Nobody would be uh, talking behind your back, and who knows? Maybe your boss would even give you a raise, right? And so the flesh screams to quit, yield to the pressure, uh, don't yield, uh, yield to the pressure, give in, right? Job, money, comfort, power. All of these are alluring things that tempt us to compromise. And it's the same back then. And we need to be uh, ready that when it comes, that we would not give in. And so in the midst of such strong temptations... We have to ask ourselves, how do we endure and persevere for his name's sake? I believe scripture gives us the answer. Paul addresses this in Romans chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. Listen to what he says. For whatever is written in earlier times is written for our instruction. Why? So that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. 
Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. Great, great passage to remember when we needed that strength. The God from whom endurance and encouragement ultimately flow supplies us with the strength that we need through the scriptures, through his word. That's what he tells us there in verse 4. So when we see his beauty, when we see his majesty, when we see who he is in his word, the Holy Spirit illuminates our eyes. When we see this and we grow in that and we relish in that glory and we get caught up with his majesty and we are overwhelmed by who he is that we see in scripture we find the strength to endure so that we don't compromise and give in. I want to encourage you, if you haven't done so already, to memorize and pray the prayer of the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 18. It's something that I always pray before I open up God's word. The psalmist prayed this prayer, Open my eyes, O God, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. And I pray, O God, open my eyes that I may Behold, wondrous things from your word. Too often we approach God's word just as a book. Something I'm supposed to do. Cry out to God, Lord, open my eyes that I may see wondrous things. Things I've not seen before uh, of your majesty and your glory as I read your word. Cry out to God to help so that you will see this. That you will be exposed to it. And that's where we find our strength to persevere, to endure, to say no to all that is evil and compromising. So remember Psalm 119, verse 18. So then, Jesus knows and commends them for their hatred of evil. But we want to move on here because he also knows that they have come short in the vital area. There in verse 4 and in verse 5. And in verse 4. They lost their love for Christ and for the brethren. Notice what he says. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you, and will remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent. <clears throat> See, too often what happens here is that Christians measure Christianity by theology alone. And that can be very dangerous. Theology is critical. I don't want to take away from that. Doctrine is absolutely critical. But too often, people know these things, but they lack practice. They lack the working, the doing, if you will. See, Christianity necessarily entails both orthodox doctrine, true theology, but also obedient behavior that follows that theology. I believe biblically that the two are inseparable. But it's amazing. I have met people who had some incredible knowledge. But when you look at their lives, you begin to wonder, what is it that you have? It's just head knowledge, but they just don't practice. It's not taking effect. Now with this in mind, we look at Jesus' complaint against the Ephesian Christians. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. That first word, but, the contrast, it's serious because it, it basically endangers the very life and future of the Ephesian church. And so we have to take heed 
Torah's being said here because it's critical. The formula there, I have this against you. He uses this again and again in these seven letters. It describes the spiritual moral problems of these churches. And here in Ephesus, he does it again. It points to the divine displeasure. The displeasure of Jesus Christ against this church. The against you, that, those words against you, warns of future judgment if that situation doesn't change. So the problem of the Ephesian church is that they left, they have forsaken the first love. Here's the problem. What does this love refer to? And there's two main, two main views. One is that the love that they left was brotherly love, love for the Christian church. Okay. Uh, one scholar states the Ephesian converts had known such a love in their early years, but their struggle with false teachers and their hatred of heretical teaching had apparently engendered hard feelings and harsh attitudes towards one another to such an extent that it mounted to a forsaking of the supreme Christian virtue of love. So they believe that when they left their first love, it's referring to love for the brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay? And they argue that it couldn't be the love for Christ, because when you look at verse 2 and 3, it looks like they had a good love for Jesus Christ. Then the other view is that the love that they left is the primary love they had for Jesus Christ. They argue when it says the first love, that word first means preeminent. It's a preeminent love. And there's very, very sound arguments for that as well. So you have those who say that this love is for the brethren, and those who say that this love is for Jesus. They've forsaken that love. But I believe that it's far better to, to look at this and argue that both views is acceptable, is what he's talking about. In other words, Jesus is basically saying that you've left your first love towards me and as a result towards others as well. Right? The two are connected. We see that throughout Scripture. A decrease in love for Jesus Christ results in decrease in love for others. As one um, bridge scholar argues, he says, where love for God wanes, love for man diminishes, and where love for man is soured, love for God degenerates into religious formalism. And both constitute a denial of the revelation of God in Christ. If the price paid by the Ephesians for the preservation of true Christianity was the loss of love, then the price was too high. For Christianity without love is a perverted faith. And so that's what happened to them. Okay, They compromised that love. They forsook that love. Good deeds represent the outward works of the church, but Jesus has piercing eyes that look past the outward qualities into the heart. And so, these Ephesian church, so this Ephesian church had the outward qualities, but his eyes show that they had a heart problem. They had a heart problem. A church that does not have a healthy heart does not endure long. So their love for Jesus Christ had weakened. They were going through all of these things that they were doing, but it was out of a sense of having to do more than a deep-rooted love for Jesus Christ. And so they no longer had that throbbing excitement for the Lord. They abandoned that first love. So the Ephesians loved truth more than they loved the God behind the truth. We need to understand that that is not uncommon even today. There are many people who have a lot of truth, but their love for God wanes. Very weak, very minimal. So they were on guard to maintain the purity, the, uh, the, the, the apostolic teaching, 
They had a strong desire to maintain orthodoxy. They had a strong uh, desire to reject all error. The problem is, is that they did not really truly have that sense of love that they once had for Jesus Christ. And as a result, it overflowed because of their mistrust. It overflowed towards people. They did not have a love for others as well. So they were more eager to maintain orthodoxy than to maintain their love for Jesus Christ. And so I believe that this is critical for any church. And we need to ask ourselves, yes, we have great teaching from the pulpit. We have sound orthodoxy. We have all of this stuff. But we need to ask ourselves, where is my love for Christ and for his people? Because that's what was happening to the Ephesian Christians. Now, I'm not saying that they were not believers. I believe that they were believers. But their early love had grown cold and had been replaced with a harsh zeal for orthodoxy. Yes, it's all about doctrine. It's all about doctrine, all about theology. We need to get it right. We need to get it right. We need to get it right. And I agree with that. But not at the expense of having a healthy, overwhelming love for Jesus Christ, which overflows into love for others. In fact, there are those who would argue that and went so far that they were so consumed with their church and keeping it pure that they stopped going out to share the gospel and witness to people. When we refuse to witness, when we refuse to share the gospel, it's because we don't love the Lord Jesus Christ the way we should. Right? And that's what happened to them. And that's why Jesus Christ chooses to introduce himself as he does in verse 1, that he walks amongst the seven golden lampstands. Why? Because what are lampstands for? To give light in the darkness. And they had stopped giving that light in the darkness. Jesus said in Matthew 24, verses 12 to 14, he said, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So we are to go forth with a heart filled with love for the Lord Jesus Christ and show love to others, not by accepting their false ways, but by sharing the truth of Jesus Christ. See, the Ephesians, they, they lost that first love, and it affected the way they lived. Great doctrine, great theology, they toiled hard, but all of it was not because of love for Christ. It was just what they did. And there's the danger. Any questions or thoughts before we close up here? Yes? It's possible that after starting in the Spirit, sometimes we become or stumble over the line into depending upon our own and that can lead to that well, most definitely, most definitely, it happens all the time. Yeah, you start off strong, start off in the spirit, and then you get caught up with everything else that you simply do it because, hey, it's what I'm supposed to do. It's a tremendous amount to try to keep in front of you as you walk Yes, and that's the reason why, um, uh, as I said before, and what Paul talked about in Romans, this is why scripture is so important. This is why I, I you know, cry out to God, God, open my eyes. I need to see you. I need this because I can't make it through the day. I will compromise. I will give in. My flesh is too strong. Yes, it's, 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 it's hard, no doubt. Well, let's go ahead and pray. 